This program is produced by CuriosityStream.com, the world's first ad-free video-on-demand resource for documentary programming that educates, inspires, and entertains. Visit CuriosityStream.com. The following is an interview with renowned theoretical physicist Michio Kaku about the mysteries of the human mind. It was recorded in front of a live audience during the 2014 Curiosity Retreat at Gateway Canyon's Resort and Spa in southwest Colorado. Kaku is a famed futurist and co-founder of Stringfield Theory, who's carrying on Albert Einstein's quest to unite the forces of nature into a single, grand, unified theory of everything. He's also the author of numerous New York Times bestselling books, including The Future of the Mind. Our interview and audience Q&A is hosted by Google's chief internet evangelist, Vince Cerf, a pioneering electrical engineer who is widely considered one of the founding fathers of the internet. Hi, everybody. I'm Vince Cerf, and uh, I'm just going to try to moderate, although I don't think I'm going to have to. The fact that you're here says you've got questions to ask him. And so only if you run out of questions or you've done, you know, sort of berserk, uh, will the moderator intervene and say, wait a minute. Uh, Michio Kaku just gave this fabulous lecture about a topic that we don't normally hear about uh, him talking about, and that's how does the mind work? And it's one of the most peculiar, strange questions that we ask ourselves in addition to where did the universe come from and what the hell are we doing here? So uh, unless you have no questions to begin, let me ask if anybody wants to ask Michio about his, um, his lecture this morning or... Anything else that you want to ask? Because this is wide open. So where's the first one? I got one right over here. Yeah, Sir. Um, at lunch, I, I gave Dr. Kaku a, a review from uh, the New York Times. And um, I believe the, man, the man's, uh, the reviewer was Adam Frank. And he called uh, your theory of the, of the future of the mind um, a computer made of meat. Uh, I, that was not your phrase. I think that was his phrase. Um, can you comment on that? Do you think that a mind is just a computer made of meat? Well, many people have talked about the ghost in the machine. If the brain is a machine, then where is the ghost? Where is the soul? And I'm a physicist. We believe in things that are measurable, reproducible, falsifiable. And I'm open to all sorts of crazy things. Uh, angels, miracles, ghosts. I'm open to everything. But they got to be quantifiable, measurable, testable, and so on and so forth. When it comes to the ghosts in the machine, people have tried, really tried to measure the ghosts in the machine. Like when you pass away, does your weight change when you pass away? And we see no indication at all that your weight changes when you die. So people have looked for it, but it's not reproducible or falsifiable. Therefore, it's outside the boundaries of physics. So until someone can show me an angel, until someone can show me a ghost or a soul, I'll simply say it's outside the province of physics. That doesn't mean they don't exist. Maybe they do. It's just that we cannot quantify it. So when I give you a definition of consciousness in my book, and I give you a scale to measure the level of consciousness of everything from a thermostat all the way up to Albert Einstein, okay? It's quantifiable, falsifiable, reproducible, testable, measurable. But for those people who think there's something more than that, my attitude is, you could be right, show me. And at that point, 
they begin to slobber and bubble and <laughs> fulminate. And, <laughs> and say bad things to you. And say I bad see. things to me, right. <laughs> so there, here's another one. Sir. Uh, yeah, very, very interesting uh, presentation. I'm a biologist, so I come from the imprecise end of the scientific spectrum where you are from the precise and uh, exact end. But that's, I think that's particularly important because as we, as we make the transition and look at the difference, you know, the the application of, of the measurable and quantifiable things to, to understanding something like the mind. Is the development of that process also including what I call the chemical messengers that are absolutely involved in those processes? And when we talk about sensors and whatever, are those coming along at the same rate? Because I think those are critical in, in, in that understand. I understand. Well, you point out a weak spot in the sense that when you get down to the exact mechanism, the biochemical, neurological mechanism by which all this happens, things start to get a little fuzzy. So, for example, in my book, I mentioned that for a long time, people thought that a computer was a good analog and metaphor for the human brain. Now we realize that it's not so good because, you see, computers are basically Turing machines. You have inputs, outputs, and a program. But the brain has no input or output or program. The brain has no programming. The brain has no Pentium chip. The brain has no software. The brain has no windows. It has no subroutines. A brain doesn't have any of the attributes that we associate with a computer. So what is the brain? The brain is a learning machine of some sort. It rewires itself after learning every new task. So these things we can talk about, quantify, and write about. But then you ask a more embarrassing question. How does the brain rewire itself when it learns a new task? At the biochemical level, at the neurological level. And at that point, we're still very much in the dark as to how the brain actually does it. So there are two approaches, the top-down approach and the bottom-up. The top-down approach is simply programming all the laws of intelligence onto a disk, putting the disk into a computer, and the computer suddenly says, I am aware, I am alive, I think. That program has dominated artificial intelligence for 50 years, the top-down approach. We now realize that's a bust. It's simply too complicated. The bottom-up approach is following evolution. Evolution starting from a bug and animals and alligators and reptiles, slowly going up to monkeys and then to humans. And so the bottom-up approach is you learn by bumping into things. You learn by making mistakes, by errors. That's how babies learn to walk. There's no walking gene that tells you how to walk the first try. You have to bump into things to learn how to walk. And so we think that the bottom-up approach has a lot of merit to it that we neglected when we tried to make models of artificial intelligence. But then the question you ask is, well, how do you do it biochemically? How do you actually do it at the neurological level? And that's a frontier question. That's a question that we're still working on. So could I intervene and to make one suggestion here? There are such things as emergent properties from complex systems, uh, or from simple systems, that uh, whose, uh, the emergent properties are not necessarily predictable from analyzing just the specific interactions of some very low-level thing. And it may very well be that some of this is actually an emergent property of the lower-level uh, biochemical interactions that we know about in the brain. Okay. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Rick Satava, University of Washington, and former DARPA. Um, two questions that are related. One, 
how are we getting this downloadable information into our brain on a technical standpoint? And second of all, which goes back to my favorite cartoon for the far side, when the student reaches and says, may I be excused, my brain is full. Will we be able to actually overload the brain to a point that it become confusing or psychotic? Well, so far, when we've analyzed people with eidetic memory, that is photographic memory, uh, they don't suffer from overload at all. Um, one of these individuals uh, said that she sees split image. One image is reality she sees today, and the other image is a day 20 years ago that she's reliving second by second, reliving that same day. She suffers from no overload at all, except it gets in the way. It bothers her. It bothers her that she's continually haunted by memories of what happened decades ago, scene by scene, second by second. So I think evolution has given us the ability to forget all that. But as far as overload, you know, it's often said that we use only 10% of our brains. There's a new Hollywood movie with Holly Berry based on exactly that principle that we only lose 10% of our brain. From the best of our knowledge, that information comes from a comic book. A comic book of the 1950s simply made it up, and it's been perpetuated ever since the 1950s that we only use 10% of our brain. We don't know how much percent of the brain we use, but we realize that the capacity is astronomical. That, Like I said, Kim Peek memorized, what, 10,000 volumes? He could cite letter by letter, line by line, 10,000 volumes of books that he memorized, and he suffered from no uh, overload um, at all. Okay. Now, the other question you asked was, oh, yeah, uh, uploading. It turns out that uploading a memory is easier than we thought. The hippocampus is the gateway to memory. When you learn something, all the memories go to the hippocampus and then are spread throughout the brain to make long-term memory. We can record, you saw the slide, we can record the impulses across the hippocampus. We can tape record it. And when we reinsert that tape recording into another monkey, or let's say another mouse, which is, has been done, then that mouse learns what another mouse learned. And so uploading memories turned out to be a lot easier than we thought. Now, we don't know the gibberish that we tape recorded. We just tape record the gibberish, and we load this gibberish into another mouse, and bingo, it learns what the first mouse learned. And so uploading turned out to be a lot easier than we thought. We once thought we would have to somehow have a code by which we codify memory and then insert it into another person. No, we simply tape record it and insert it in the future. So in the future... Somebody may have a vacation, a very nice vacation that is recorded, and then you simply upload that vacation to your hippocampus, and you can relive that whole memory. And so uploading turned out to be a lot easier than we thought. So there's a couple of issues here, if you don't mind my uh, interjecting. First of all, in order for that to work, the uh, memory event has to be happening while they're recording because it's going through the hippocampus. If you have a whole vacation and that gets stored in long-term memory, it's not so clear how you pull that back out again. But there's a, another way of thinking about um, this: how much of the brain we use. I'm sure a lot of you have had this situation where you think of a problem or you're trying to think of something and you can't think of it, and you go to sleep on it, and bam, you wake up and, and it's there. Something was going on while you were not conscious of it going on. So I'd argue that there's a lot of brain operation that goes on that we're not aware of, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means we're not aware of it. Sort of like uh, 
just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean they're not after me or something like that. Right. So is that, is that a fair uh, way of thinking about... Exactly. We now realize that thought is like an iceberg. The conscious part is the tiniest part, the tip of the iceberg. Underneath it are all these unconscious calculations. Like when you walk into a room, your brain is calculating up, down, chair, three dimensions, these are people, I know the names of these people, what is this room for? All that calculation, trillions of calculations are being done without your knowledge, simply by walking into a room. And so people working in artificial intelligence now are coming up against that, that we now realize that most thought is unconscious. Balance, up, down, color, who's this person, what am I doing, all that stuff is unconscious. You're totally unconscious of it, because if we were conscious, we would be paralyzed. If you were aware of all the computations that your brain is doing as you recognize a cup, you go bananas. And so nature has mercifully, mercifully allowed us to forget all that stuff. So Freud was right. The unconscious mind is huge compared to the, the conscious mind. So Freud got a lot of things wrong. Okay. However, he did get, he got the unconscious mind right. He got the fact that there is a libido, there is an ego, there is a superego. He got the basic structure of thought correct, I thought. Okay, let's get one back. Remember your numbers. One, two, three. Okay. Um, memories, I mean, you, you mentioned maybe this is only, you can only do them contemporaneously, but if you went to old memories, it seems like memories very um, subjective. You know, you kind of have the Rashomon problem of, I remember something I did 20 years ago, and, I, and in that, my version of that, I was the hero and saved the day and did wonderful things. And Kurosawa, people, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. If, if people had seen other people who might have had that memory, might have seen that episode in a different light, which of those memories is, I mean, which of those is stored, do you think, or how does that... Okay, we think we know the answer to that problem. Okay, short-term memories come through the hippocampus and then are distributed throughout the cortex in terms of long-term memories according to categories, okay? Mm -hmm. And by looking at people with strokes, you can actually see that their memory is degraded selectively. That is, an apple, you don't simply lose the memory of an apple, you may lose the memory of the sensation, the taste or color of an apple if you have a stroke, okay? Then the question is, well, if the memory is stored throughout the brain, how does the brain recall the memory. This is the, the famous recall problem. How does the brain reassemble the memory if the memory is shot through different parts of the cortex? That is not totally known. But we do know that the brain, when it retrieves a memory, has to reconstruct the memory. And that's why the memory gets changed and altered every time you recall it. Every time you recall a memory, you degrade it. You actually change it slightly by recalling it. And that's why we have memories of things that never happened or memories of things that we got totally wrong that we can verify through our diaries that we got wrong because the retrieving mechanism actually alters the memory in the process. And so we now realize that memories are much more malleable than we thought. Recalling the memory requires a biochemical reconstruction of the memory, which alters it in the process. Wow. Okay, who's got number two? There we go. I'm um, curious to know how the memory is translated into motor skills. So, for example, uh, you teach a mouse how to open a door in a specific way that would require some skill. If you were to translate that uh, memory to another mouse, um, the next mouse would know what to do, but it would have the skill to actually do it. Yeah, well, if you saw The Matrix, the movie, uh, karate skills are transferable by put jacking in a CD drive into the brain. <laughs> um, that requires muscle memory. 
And we think that muscle memory may be outside the hippocampus. In other words, the hippocampus records the sensations mm-hmm. that are surging into your brain. But muscle memory is automatic. And we think muscle memory be partly stored in the spinal cord, mm-hmm. partly stored in the brainstem. So, so that you can become a famous baseball player simply by uploading the skills of a baseball player, right? You may only get the memories of the baseball player, but the skills, <laughs> the muscle, the fine-tuning of the muscles may be distributed in the brainstem and other parts. This is very funny. I remember hitting a home run. Why can't I do it anymore? (laughs) Who's got number three? There you are. Yeah, I'm going to drive this in very much a different direction, so I apologize in advance if you don't want to talk about this. But in your book, you noted that the Japanese are much more accepting of robotics That's right. than Americans. And that, in fact, robots are being used as healthcare workers with the elderly. Mm-hmm. Do you foresee a time when the American culture is accepting? Is anybody working in this field? etc.? Well, there is a field called friendly AI. It is actually a branch of AI theory, where from the get-go, from the very start, we program robots to be affectionate, to be emotional, to bond with people whose primary mission is to serve individuals. However, let's be blunt, a lot of the funding for robots in America comes from the Pentagon. Right. And the Pentagon has one instruction, kill enemy. <laughs> okay. well, That's it, period, end of story, kill no, well, come enemy. come on now, it's not that bad. <laughs> okay, know. identify enemy, then kill the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> Now, in Japan, what is driving artificial intelligence is the commercial market. People want to buy robots because they're playmates, they're emotional. Uh, For example, uh, Sony created the Aibo, a, a dog that you pet. And it purrs, and you can say uh, it talks to you. A dog purrs? A dog purrs. They got, I well, guess they got confused about animals there, right? <laughs> it makes nice noises. <laughs> oh, fair enough. It makes nice noises when you pet it, and it wiggles its tail, and it shows <laughs> happiness, right? So the, the commercial direction of Japanese robotics is for nurses, for playmates, especially in nursing homes where you have a lot of people who are isolated and depressed. You want uh, robots that you can pet, play with, in nursing homes. And so Japan is the leader in emotional robots, robots that bond with you, that are affectionate, that can serve as nurses and, uh, and work as healthcare workers in nursing homes. Because the, what drives it is the commercial sector. In America, it's the Pentagon and Hollywood. And Hollywood <laughs> wants to create Terminator robots uh, for, for your kids. And so the culture is different. That, that robots in the West tend to be like Terminator robots that kill people because they're, they're driven by warfare. While in Asia, it goes back to, to Shintoism. Shintoism is a religion that says that there are spirits in all inanimate objects. There are spirits of the trees, spirits of the, of the water, and therefore are spirits inside metal robots. And so kids feel an affinity to, to robots because there's a spirit inside these robots. And so there's a, there's a difference. And it has implications because if friendly AI is the foundation for the commercial sector in Japan. That means in the future we'll have very sophisticated, friendly AI systems that are built in from the very start. While in the United States, uh, friendly AI is very new. Is very new, and we're just beginning to create robots whose basic premise is to be funny, to be affectionate, to be helpful, because most of the robots are designed to kill people. 
So I, I'm sorry, but I feel like I have to defend Google anyway because we're very <laughs> interested in robotics. Our cars drive themselves, and they're mm-hmm. not trying to kill anybody. In fact, that would be a really bad thing for our business. So our cars are being very, very careful. Uh, a lot of the AI that's going on in speech understanding and speech recognition, things like Siri. You remember mm-hmm. one of the famous questions of Siri? What? What? Uh, let's see. What is the meaning of life? And Siri says. I find it odd that you would ask this question of an inanimate object. <laughs> but, uh, you know, really, we are trying to make more positive use of robots. But I also feel compelled to mention Sherry Turkle's book, uh, Alone Together. Yes. Sherry devotes about the first third of the book to people's reactions to robots when they over-imagine that the robots have social skills and social intelligence. And they become very upset when the robot seems to ignore them or uh, you know, not respond to them in an emotional way. That's, so we really need to be thoughtful about how much we are willing to allow ourselves to be fooled by the belief that the robot actually has feelings as opposed to mimicking them, which is pretty close to where you might be in the Japanese case. Mm-hmm. All right. Yes, ma'am. Number four. I'm afraid, and I apologize to you because I'll probably have you foaming at the mouth. (laughs) Um, And it is to pick up a bit on the mouse question and a bit on the programmable part of the brain. From experience um, in working with animals, oftentimes we have seen something that you would probably define as genetic memory, that the animal has never been exposed, has been separated, and yet the characteristics and actions of that particular breed seems to allude to a genetic memory. And the other one is in being exposed to a great deal of the military medical community, Um, the fact that, and there is some research going on in a very imprecise way, the fact of the out-of-body or near-death of, you know, many of these soldiers that have been through that experience and have reported back. There is some research going on, but um, it Without the brain, then, how can there be a consciousness? Yes. Okay, I have a chapter on near-death experiences. Yes. Okay. Now, the United States Air Force was very much interested in this because pilots, when they bank rapidly, sometimes lapse into unconsciousness, mm. which is fatal for a jet fighter pilot. So when you put people inside an ultra-centrifuge and you increase the velocity of that centrifuge, blood drains from the the brain and drains from the eye. Mm -hmm. The outer part of the eye loses blood first. And so what you see is you see the peripheral vision disappearing and concentrating into a tunnel. That tunnel is the basis of near-death experiences. So you can actually induce this with a dial. With a dial, you can, the veloc- you can increase the velocity of the dental centrifuge, increase the rate at which blood drains from the brain and from the outer peripheral of the eye, and create as much or as little tunnel effect of near-death experiences as you want. So this is a physiological It's phenomenon. a physiological phenomenon, but right. What about the report after for, say, an hour, an hour and a half, maybe two hours, when there is 
definite reports of, and very precise reports of what has occurred and what is going on with the person basically flatlined. Oh, wouldn't it be fair to say that some of this is a manifestation of the fact that our brains are functioning when we're not conscious, and a lot of the things you absorb, you didn't know that because you weren't conscious of it, but you absorbed a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, is that part of the story? Uh, well, all I'm saying is that what is measured in the laboratory can be measured with pilots very precisely because the Air Force knows that the life of the pilot depends upon this and that the tunnel effect is a reproducible effect, measurable, quantifiable. You can actually measure how much of the tunnel is being created by, by turning the, the thing faster and faster. And that once blood flow is restored, then the tunnel effect would disappear. And also out-of-body experiences have been looked at as well. It turns out that in epileptics, when part of the brain is removed, you don't feel a thing because the brain has no sensors. You put electrodes, and if you put electrodes at the juncture between two lobes, the juncture between two lobes, the brain gets confused as to where the impulse is coming from. And that is a source of out-of-body experiences. Okay? We can actually induce that like a light switch. Uh, I quote one investigator in Germany who had a woman whose, again, brain was exposed because of epilepsy. And by hitting the electrode at the juncture between two lobes, she felt like she was hovering above her body. Mm -hmm. And then when they took the electrode out, boom, she was back to earth again. And they could do it repeatedly, back and forth, back and forth. They can induce this effect. And so we, do, we know, therefore, that out-of-body experiences are caused by the confusion of two senses. Uh, for example, seasickness. Uh, seasickness is, is created because the eye sees something different than what the ear it's hears. Yeah. And you can induce this in a backwards direction. If I have a drum that is spinning like this with vertical lines on it, I see vertical lines going across my eyes. My inner ear tells me I'm at rest. My eyeball tells me I am moving, and you will throw up in about two or three minutes. Oh, terrific. Watching, I'm not going to demonstrate that. I'm here, not going to demonstrate that. Okay. <laughs> but watching a stationary, stationary but rotating wastebasket with vertical lines, you can actually make somebody throw up. Because, again, you're exciting two parts of the brain. The brain gets confused, and that gives you out-of-body experiences. That gives you seasickness and so on and so forth. You also mentioned genetic memory. And, yeah, I personally believe that memories can be genetically uh, transmitted. Uh, I'll say something that is controversial. I even think that people's fear of reptiles may go back to the dinosaurs. Uh, we coexisted for, with dinosaurs for tens of millions of years, and we were an evening snack for dinosaurs. And the fear, the fear of reptilian uh, things look, uh, lunging at us is probably burned into our psyche. Today, we're much bigger than lizards, right? So why should we be afraid of a lizard? If I have a snake here, then half this group is going to run crazy, right? Why? The snake is harmless. It's only this big. It fears humans. It thinks, oh my God, humans, humans, right? But I think that we probably have a genetic memory, spiders and reptiles. We probably remember when we were only this big and coexisted with creatures that were many, when, many when stories tall. We, when you say we, you don't mean Homo sapiens. You mean the predecessors to Homo sapiens. Yeah, that's right, lot. our ancestors. I mean, mammals, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you. I, otherwise, you'd be propagating the theory that humans coexisted with dinosaurs and we didn't. No, oh, no, our ancestors, right. 65 plus million thank years you. ago. Okay, right. thank you. Right. Okay, it was good. Going to be controversial. Yeah, well, boy, <laughs> We're not that, that was controversial. Really controversial. <laughs>
This program was recorded in front of a live audience during the 2014 Curiosity Retreat at Gateway Canyons Resort and Spa in Southwest Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about the mysteries of the mind, the origins of the universe, and many other fascinating science topics, check out CuriosityStream.com, the world's first ad-free, video-on-demand resource for documentary programming that educates, inspires, and entertains. We now return to our discussion and audience Q&A with theoretical physicist Michio Kaku, author of the number one New York Times bestseller, The Future of the Mind. All right, we got one more question here. Man in the red shirt, near number two. Go. The, the question about consciousness and sensory deprivation, if you put a person in an anechoic chamber and darken it, mm-hmm. they will begin confabulating. They will make up things right. rather than just accept the darkness. Can you comment more on that? Yeah, I think it's a survival skill. Uh, we see things that are not there. Uh, for example, you've all seen the picture of the face on Mars, right? Oh, yeah. It really does look like a face on Mars, but some people go overboard and create websites dedicated to the, the face on Mars. It's a sculpture. Right, mm. and there's even a name for it. Uh, we humans are genetically hardwired, genetically hardwired to see things that are not there because our ancestors were timid. Our ancestors were timid monkeys, and uh, for those monkeys that were not timid, well, they didn't see any rustling in the forest, and they got eaten up by the tiger. Because maybe 1% of the time, there was a tiger. 99% of the time, there was no tiger. But that 1% saved their butt. And we are descended from timid monkeys, timid primates, who saw things that weren't there. And that's why we hallucinate. Because in darkened rooms, in deprivation chambers, and so on and so forth, our senses get confused. And we see all sorts of nonsense that's not there because it's good for us. It was good for our survival to see things that were not there. Because it's always good to err on the side of caution. Because 1% of the time, there is a tiger there. 1% of the time, there is something there that can eat us. And it, it helps to have that ability. And that's why we see Jesus Christ in muffins. That's why we see the Virgin Mary in scrambled eggs. That's why we see Donald Duck floating in clouds. We're hardwired. We can't help it. So we're also hardwired to recognize patterns. And I think that's another major part of the way the brain actually functions. I don't know whether you... Uh, I haven't read this latest book of yours yet, so I don't know whether you spec Calculated on uh, any of that pattern-making brain function. Yeah, we are pattern-seeking um, organisms. Uh, uh, robots are not very good at it, but we're actually quite good at seeing patterns. But we're so good, we see patterns of things that are not really there. Right. That's but, the origin of superstition. But that's part of the ability to uh, fill in a partial pattern, for example, or fill in something that might be, when maybe it's half of a of a tiger that's there, and we need to figure out it's a whole tiger, and that's where, that's where we're supposed to run away. Mm-hmm. Gentleman in the back in the blue shirt. Yeah, I have a question, uh, kind of like the far future of the mind, where you're talking about the connectome, mm-hmm. um, all your memories and your brain functionality, and having a, a genome uh, disk of uh, your physical organic body uh, genetic chemistry and stuff like that, and, and re-instantiating them, um, either in uh, an organic form or in a silicon-based robotic type uh, computer thing. Um, and you also talk, spoke in your book about um, taking neuron by neuron and duplicating it. Now, my question is, is your actual consciousness, would it survive and you actually be in this new being? Because perhaps you could create several, three or four or five different exact uh, connectomes and um, genetic copies of yourself, and you couldn't possibly be conscious at all of them at the same time. So would, would your consciousness really survive that kind of growth? Well, if this philosophy is correct, it means that the soul, 
is basically information. And since information can be duplicated, it means that, yes, in some sense, your soul could be duplicated. Now, I think a short-term goal before we create immortality is a library of souls. Today, we have a library where you can uh, listen to transcripts of your ancestors and famous people. In the future, when you go to the library, you'll have a holographic image of Albert Einstein or somebody and have a conversation with them. Because the memories, the uh, personality, those traits can be codified and placed inside a hologram. And so you have a very interesting conversation with your ancestors about their trials and tribulations, what happened to them. And I think politicians would love to talk to Winston Churchill. I would love to talk to Albert Einstein. People would love to talk to their favorite movie actress or actor. And that's a short-term goal. In fact, if you take all your credit card transactions, all your credit card transactions, you can get a reasonable approximation of who you are because you know all your tastes in wine, the kind of movies you see, uh, the kinds of places that you've been. American Express is betting on that. Right? <laughs> right. And so, that's just credit card transactions. Yeah. <laughs> Think of what happens if you have a complete profile of your personality and your wants, desires, and memories. And that's something that is, is doable very soon. Now, the connectum, of course, will take decades. But given the fact that governments are going to spend billions of dollars on this as the next big genome project, so, uh, meaning there are going to be a lot of intermediate breakthroughs along the way. So this is, uh, you know, Commander Data did this in the holodeck, right? He had News- Newton and uh, Einstein, mm-hmm. and I don't remember whether they ended up playing poker or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a book, however, if you haven't read it yet, science fiction. It's called Kiln People by David Brin. And it's all about people who replicate themselves, but the replicas only last for a finite amount of time, like 24 hours. But they send multiple of these things out so you can be in more than one place at the same time, carry out your business. Then when they go back, they upload into the real human being, and you have multiple experiences that way. Of course, it does, it end, I won't tell you how it ends up, but it's a, it's a cool book. It ends okay, up in a bad next? way, probably. <laughs> one, remember your numbers. One, two, and where's the third one? That was number one. Number two. Go. Number one. As a theoretical physicist, do you, do you have any speculation, recognize, of course, speculation, uh, as to what caused the Big Bang? Uh, yes. Okay. Um, it's been alluded to several times, but we have something called string theory. And string theory, we think, is the theory of everything. Uh, we want an equation one inch long that would allow us to summarize all physical laws. Uh, we can do that with strings. Uh, that one-inch equation, by the way, is my equation. Okay, I wrote that equation for string field theory. It summarizes all of string theory into an equation this big. But now we have membranes, as, as uh, Lisa pointed out. It gets more complicated. But the basic point is that we think our universe is a membrane. It's a bubble of some sort, and it's expanding. We live on the skin of the bubble. That picture comes from Einstein. The new picture coming from inflation and from string theory is that there are other bubbles out there. And when these other bubbles collide with our bubble, or our bubble peels off a baby bubble, as as Stephen Hawking calls it, baby universe, that's the Big Bang. And so the Big Bang is nothing but the collision of membranes or the fissioning of membranes. And so it was mentioned uh, by Lisa that we are detecting gravity waves now. Sooner or later, we're going to have baby pictures, baby pictures of the infant (laughs) universe as it emerges from the womb. And maybe we'll find evidence of an umbilical cord, an umbilical cord that connects our baby universe to a parent universe uh, that it came from. So both inflation and string theory, which are the dominant theories in this business, uh, talk about a multiverse, 
Now, for me, that's aesthetically pleasing because I grew up uh, learning Christianity, but my parents were Buddhists. Now, in Buddhism, there is no beginning, there's no end, there's only nirvana. In Christianity, there is Genesis, when God said, let there be light. How do you reconcile two things that are totally at opposite ends of of the spectrum? Well, you can. Because according to the multiverse idea, our universe had a beginning. Our universe had a genesis. But our universe exists among other universes in an ocean of nirvana. So what is nirvana? Hyperspace. It is the fourth, fifth, sixth, all the way up to 11 dimensions. That is nirvana. Within nirvana, big bangs are happening all the time. And that's called inflation theory. And uh, the most sophisticated version of that is string theory. And so we think that what happened before the Big Bang was other universes colliding with with, uh, other universes. Now, Stephen Hawking, however, has been quoted as saying he doesn't believe in God because there was a beginning of time, and before that there was no time, so God had no time in which to create a universe, and therefore God (laughs) cannot exist. But you see, that's Einstein's theory, where time has a beginning. String theory has no singularity. There is a time before time. And that you can go, you can run the videotape backwards before the Big Bang in string theory. And when you run the videotape backwards, you find universes can collide, universes can can peel off baby universes, you can have quantum fluctuations. So there was a universe before the Big Bang, and that is the multiverse. And then the last question everyone asks is, is Elvis Presley still alive in one of these universes? <laughs> that cannot be ruled out. <laughs> cannot be ruled out. Okay, next question. So going back to the mind and the, and the brain as two distinct things, is it possible that the brain is like a hardware system that, that evolution has programmed to, to certain possibilities, but that culture is actually like the software and every experience that we haven't within that culture is what programs us to think and feel and be the way we are. Well, in some sense, yes. Uh, we think that the brain is wetware rather than hardware. Instead of silicon, it's made out of, out of cells. But there has to be inputs into this. And there has to be some kind of activity within that mass of neurons. And that is the mind. So the mind is basically the neural activity. And the mind, in turn, is influenced by culture, by everything that we come in contact with. The new development is we think we can duplicate that neural uh, pathways uh, artificially using computers, in which case we can separate the mind from the body. And then that gets back to the Middle Ages, where people believed that the mind and the body were two separate entities. And so we're sort of going back to the Middle Ages. If we took a baby and we just fed it computer data and images and things like that and watched it grow up, would it not grow up with the mind? Uh, probably would. It would be very difficult to do that because, of course, you would have to program all the memories of growing up, millions and millions of memories to program it. But in principle, it might be possible to, to program snippets of memories and then insert that into the hippocampus of a baby, and the baby would then begin to uh, grow as, as a human. Now, remember that animals cannot do this. Animals live in today. They don't think about tomorrow, the day after that. And we had an example of that. There was a guy named uh, Malayasan who had surgery for epilepsy, and they cut off too much of his hippocampus. His hippocampus was destroyed. And he lived in the moment. 
You would greet him in the morning. He'd say, hi, hello, how are you? And then forget. And you have to say, hi, hello, how are you? All over again. Many, many times a day for decades. He would constantly forget as soon as he encountered you. That's how animals operate, we think. Animals probably don't have a memory more than a day or so. And they don't plan ahead. They don't think far enough ahead. And that's probably because their hippocampus is not as well formed as our hippocampus. And therefore, tomorrow is something that is alien to, uh, to an animal. By the way, his Meliasson's case is so strange. He had to relive that moment over and over again for decades. Several Hollywood movies have been made about him. Fifty uh, First Dates with Drew Barrymore mm-hmm. yeah. and Groundhog Day with Bill Murray are based on the sad case of Mr. Meliasson, a man who lived in today but not tomorrow. So actually, uh, Alzheimer's uh, has a similar effect, though, because mm-hmm. when short-term memory goes and you can't form any long-term memories, then you li- literally live in the moment. I know my mother's 98. She has this problem. Uh, so we have to reintroduce ourselves whenever we see her. Um, mobile. Uh, okay, uh, we have one, two, and three. So yes, you're number one. We've talked a lot about how the universe began. How's the universe going to end, in your view? We're not sure. The latest evidence shows that the universe is careening out of control. It is undergoing, once again, desider expansion, i.e. exponential expansion. Um, About 8 billion years after the Big Bang, it started to go into this accelerated mode. So for the last 5 billion years, it's been growing exponentially again, which means that one day the sky will be totally dark. And astronomers billions of years from now will not understand that there are stars because there will be no stars. Uh, the universe will be so big that starlight will not have time to reach us. And so astronomers billions of years from now may have no astronomy at all. And we may eventually hit what is called the big freeze when temperatures reach near absolute zero. So this is kind of pessimistic, but if you look at the time frame of the universe, the universe will evolve in five phases. The first phase was the hot Big Bang phase. The second phase is the space of stars. But that is very short. After that, stars blink out, and we start to go into this phase of neutron stars, then the black hole phase, and finally death. We're in stage two. We still have stars. Our universe is quite young. But most of the universe will just keep on expanding until it gets very dark, very cold, and life as we know it cannot survive. My attitude, however, is that this will happen billions of years from now, and if we're still alive, we should leave the universe. (laughs) Well, and in any case, if it's clear tonight, go out and look at the stars because they're still there. They're still there. Catch it while you can. Right. Okay, who's got number two? Yes, sir. I go back to your, your, you made the example about... um, you might want to consult Churchill, perhaps about military strategy, if there was this recording. But the value of, of church, speaking to Churchill wouldn't be what did you do at the Battle of Britain so much. It would be what would you do to fight al-Qaeda today. So do you envision that this similar karma, whatever you have that has the memories, would be able to synthesize those memories and create new question. thoughts? And- well, at first it would be clumsy. At first it will just be a set of previous memories. 
But eventually, we do want to have a software program that extrapolates and extends uh, the most likely, the most likely conjecture from given facts. And so if we know that a person is impulsive, for example, and flies off the handle, the computer program will then make predictions of future interactions where the person does fly off the handle. And so if, on the other hand, a person is wise and looks at all alternatives and moles and talks to his senior aides, then that person will mimic that for a new crisis of the future, consult his aides and look at, at the geopolitics and so on and so forth to come out with a more mature point of view. So there's no guarantee, but I think it's all programmable. I think it is possible to create computer programs that can then begin to incorporate the personality traits of somebody, whether they're impulsive, whether they're shy, whether or not they're grandstanding, whether or not they're mature and see other people's points of views. These are programmable skills. So it be a virtual Churchill kind of thing. That's right. Yeah. I think one of the obvious things is, depending on how you interact with this virtual thing, um, right now we're interacting using spoken language, and that's a very powerful tool. You can get a computer to interact that way. It's not the same as having human bodies interacting and shaking hands and touching each other and seeing so you could probably get a pretty good emulation of... If you saw the movie Her, how many people have seen the movie Her, right? Well, realize that artificial intelligence today is at level one. <laughs> that is, we have robots that barely understand where they're located, okay? But eventually, we'll have emotional robots, robots that bond with people, that understand their problems. And then beyond that, robots that can plan and strategize and see tomorrow. So you see that we're quite a few decades away from Her. But I see no basic computer problem Preventing us from creating her, okay? It's just that we are at the most primitive level of consciousness, which is basically understanding our position in space, rather than our relationship to other people and then projecting into the future. Who had number three here? Was, was there one? Okay, so make, all right, uh, here and then over here is number two. May actually dovetail right into that or be repetitious. Um, in your library of souls, okay? Uh, when we were to bring forward a soul, based on this last answer, you were talking about an interpretive program of those memories rather than those than that being their real soul. Mm-hmm. So that they are not, again, the awareness, the consciousness is not there. It's really an interpretation of data. That's what you're saying. Uh, that's right. In other words, it's nice to talk to your ancestors about how it was when they were young and all the problems they faced as teenagers. But what you really want to know is how would they face your problems today? That's what you really want to know. And you can create a computer program that will simulate the characteristics of that individual. You know, shy, impulsive, whether they're brave or whatever. These things are programmable. And then if you ask them, well, what would you do in my situation today? They would get a reasonable approximation. A reasonable approximation of most likely what they would recommend that you do today, given your circumstances. But your souls are not self-aware. Yeah, no, these souls would not be self-aware. But however, but as time goes by, if they construct better and better reconstructions of reality and they put themselves in that reconstruction, then they will have self-awareness. So I see no reason why we can't have robots that are self-aware. But as you see, we're at level one. Self-aware robots are level three. This program was recorded in front of a live audience during the 2014 Curiosity Retreat at Gateway Canyons Resort and Spa in Southwest Colorado. 
We now return to our discussion and audience Q&A with famed futurist and co-founder of Stringfield Theory, Michio Kaku, hosted by renowned internet pioneer, Vince Cerf. Okay, we have one way in the back here, and then we'll get number two is right here. That's right. But I've never understood why string theory can make both work at the same time, or why it can unite. Okay, if you try to take, well, uh, as you pointed out, there are two great theories of the universe. First is the theory of the very big, that's Einstein's theory. And then there's a theory of the very small, that's the quantum theory. And the two of them together represent the sum total of all physical knowledge. Let me repeat, the sum total of these two theories represents the sum total of all physical knowledge. All physical knowledge, without exception, can be described either by relativity or by quantum mechanics. The problem is these two theories hate each other. (laughs) They do not mix at all. Every time you mix them, they blow up. And they blow up because um, there's no infinitely small, well, it turns out that string theory gives you a cutoff in the expressions that explode when you combine these two theories. When you combine these two theories and ask, how does an apple fall? The answer you get is infinity. You get nonsense. Right. However, in string theory, there's a cutoff, and that cutoff is the size of the string. In other words, if if the string were infinitely small, you would also have the theory diverge and explode. So the divergence of the theory is a one over zero problem. Mm -hmm. One over zero. Zero is the size of the object you're looking at. If the size of the object you're looking at is infinitely small, then one over zero is infinity, and that's the origin of the fact that these two blow up. String theory, strings have a definite size, a limit, and that's the cutoff. That's why string theory works. You have all the properties of the quantum theory, all the properties of relativity, but you have a cutoff that cuts off what are called the integrals, and so you don't get divergences. You do not get one over zero. You get one over the length of the string. That's how it works. The strings are really short, though. I mean, They're this really is like short. Plank length or something. Ten to the minus thirty-three centimeters. Yeah. Yes, right. not very big, but it's not zero. That's the important part. Right. Okay, I've missed somebody. Not, no, you're next up back there, where I can barely see you. Okay. The quantum mechanics is really spooky. No, of this That's right. duality, a particle wave duality, and right. the way the particle or the wave behaves. Right. There's been experiments in France about these pilot waves that can overthrow quantum mechanics. I wanted to know your so far, we've seen no deviations whatsoever from quantum mechanics. But quantum mechanics is so bizarre, so spooky, that many, many people have challenged it, including Einstein. So, for example, the most famous paradox in all of physics is the cat problem. It is world famous. Nobel Prize winners have yelled and screamed at each other over the cat problem. The cat problem says you have a cat in a box. The cat is, you can't look at it. You don't know whether it's dead or alive. And so before you open the box, the cat is both dead and alive simultaneously. In fact, the cat is in all possible states, in another state. When you open the box, you see the cat is alive. But opening the box requires an observation. Observation requires consciousness. And therefore, Einstein hated this idea that you have to have a human to construct reality. Reality, said Einstein, should be independent of the human. If a tree falls in a forest and there's no human there, it fell in the forest. And it still made a noise. And it still made a noise, right? Quantum mechanics says before a human looks at the tree, it could be up, down, sideways, 
toothpicks, burnt, charred, <laughs> on fire, all possible states until you look at it and then you find out that it's upright. So Einstein would invite people to his house and say, look at the moon. Does the moon exist because a mouse looks at the moon? Well, according to quantum mechanics, in some sense, yes. So how do you resolve this paradox? There are two bizarre ways, each of them outlandish. The first is that, yes, an observation has to be made, but how do you know that the observer exists? If I'm opening the box, how do I know I exist? How do I know I'm alive? Because this person looks at me. How do I know he's alive? Well, this person looks at him. Well, how do I know he's alive? Because someone looks at him and they have a spiral called Vigner's friend going all the way up to God. And that's what Eugene Wigner, one of the inventors of quantum mechanics, said. This proves the existence of God, because God is the ultimate observer. Now, there's an alternate point of view that I believe that's even crazier. It is the point of view that most Nobel laureates, friends of mine, that believe in, but it is absolutely outlandish. And that is, there are parallel universes. That the, the universe of a cat splits in half. In one universe, there's a dead cat. In the other universe, there's a live cat. And the universe is constantly splitting, which means that Elvis Presley is still alive in some universe. And that the smallest thing, like one quantum event, can separate two universes. If a cosmic ray goes through Hitler's mother, and Hitler's mother does not have a, have a baby, then maybe that universe has no World War II, and 60 million people didn't have to die. I mean, you know, your mind goes crazy thinking about this, but there could be alternate realities constantly fissioning off. And that's the idea that string theory promotes, because string theory also has this basic uh, idea. And it's the many worlds theory that's even more preposterous than cosmic consciousness, and that is many worlds. So you have a choice. Either you believe in a cosmic consciousness or you believe in many worlds. These are the two resolutions of the cat problem. Don't you just have a, I'm sorry, but to keep going on that, don't you also have a problem with the, of the observer? The fact that I'm observing the cat, I now have some effect on whether the cat's alive or dead or has lost all its... Yeah, you actually create the cat. By opening the box, your, the wave function collapses, and the cat is either now dead or alive. So you, a conscious being, force the cat to be either dead or alive. But my observation could also cause the cat to be... In some sense, yes. In some sense, your observation of opening the box caused the cat to be dead or alive. Now, Einstein thought, this is preposterous. This is the collapse of the wave function. This is the collapse of the wave function. Now, in the many worlds theory, the wave function never collapses. It splits. It just keeps on splitting everywhere. Neither one of these makes any sense at all. (laughs) Except transistors, lasers, modern electronics, and GPS, they're all based on this, okay? All of modern electronics, the Internet, it's all based on the cat. Well, they're based on probability distribution. Which is the I'm cat. I'm not going to argue that they're based on a dead cat. Okay, I, I, one other thing to toss into the equation. This is a question for you, Mitchell. Um, there, have, uh, there was a theory early on that the uh, human brain evolved or developed. Uh, you know, you start when you're born, and, and uh, eventually, as an adult, your brain becomes sort of stable and nothing changes. We've learned that the brain, first of all, is a very plastic thing, even as an adult. The second thing, the more interesting one, is the notion that as a a newborn, your brain is actually very, very connected, fully connected. And it's unnecessarily so. And then what happens is that as you experience the world, as you have various physical experiences, 
those parts, those pathways that were connected that are not stimulated by uh, this uh, interaction with the world wither away. And so you're literally editing uh, the brain connectivity as you experience the world. Do you have an opinion about the usefulness or even the veracity of that notion? Well, the brain constantly prunes itself, especially during puberty. Uh, that's when a major pruning process takes place. A lot of cells die, new cells are formed at puberty. And we think maybe that's where schizophrenia comes in. We think that maybe the brain overprunes itself and creates uh, the schizophrenic brain, because schizophrenia starts at puberty. And so I think that the brain. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like a t shirt, doesn't it? Schizophrenia starts at puberty. <laughs> But it's true. <laughs> That's when it starts. <laughs> so the brain is constantly rewiring itself, but sometimes it rewires itself incorrectly. For example, if you brain scan a schizophrenic who hears voices, their left temporal lobe lights up. However, your front part of the brain, the conscious brain, knows that you're talking to it yourself when you talk to yourself. So most of the time, the left brain talks to the front brain. That's the, called the normal brain. In schizophrenics, the two parts of the brain don't talk to each other. So you constantly generate voices without your permission. Now, if you hear a voice in your mind without your permission, what is that called? Madness. That's what madness is, hearing voices without your permission. This sounds a lot like the other observation about not being sure where your body is. I mean, you know, your level one consciousness about knowing location and, you know, where is my arm and so on. This notion that you, that you can artificially force the brain to not understand where it is or where various parts of it, where is your, your point of view in this out-of-body experience. So it sounds almost the same uh, Well, kind it's of thing. a little bit different in the sense that the brain here is not communicating correctly with the other part of the brain. And you see that with the brain scan. Uh, the left brain lights up like a Christmas tree because you have a schizophrenic attack, but you're not aware of it. You think that Martians are beaming messages into your brain. But, but the same argument could be made for the person who had the artificially induced out-of-body experience because the mm -hmm. brain is not communicating enough information for you to recognize that you're not out of your body. It's the same kind of thing. It's an isolation and separation of sensory uh, uh, abilities. Yeah, well, there's similarities. But here in schizophrenia, two parts of the brain don't, don't communicate very well. So what about multiple... Uh uh, personalities and things That's like that. That's extremely rare. However, it's been documented and brain scans show that the brain patterns of people with multiple personalities actually change. So it's not totally science fiction that you can have more than one personality in the same brain. Wow. Also, people are bipolar. So you, uh, you saw pictures of the movie stars that had bipolar syndrome, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Uh, the, the whole list is in, the woman who played Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, Vivian, uh, Vivian Leigh, she had bipolar syndrome. We think it's because of the, of the ricocheting of the left and the right brain. The two parts of the brain uh, are balancing each other. One part is more optimistic. One part of the brain is more pessimistic. We think that the balance is shifted in bipolar. So one part of the brain who is pessimistic dominates, you become depressive, and then it shifts to the other part of the brain, which is overly optimistic, and you beget, be, become manic. And it runs in families, uh, families of composers, playwrights, artists, um, people like Van Gogh. We think that a lot of the great artists of the past were in the manic phase when they created their great works of art and then went into severe depression. And we think that it's a, a, basically the balance between the left and the right brain that's, uh, that's not adjusted correctly. 
And so we think that a lot of mental illnesses can be explained rather simply. We can't cure them, but we think we understand what is going wrong in the brain of somebody with OCD or somebody with bipolar syndrome. This is kind of interesting that sometimes we learn more about brain function by things that go wrong because mm-hmm. we can sort of uh, estimate what that might what might have caused that. Mm-hmm. Okay, who else has got to go out? One, two, three, and four. Okay, where's number one? Um, I guess to kind of go along with that as far as perception of time when you're younger uh, and as you get older, um, your perception seems like it, it goes on and on when you're young, but as you age, it seems like you're constantly saying, where did the time go? Um, is that, is that just the perception? Oh, no, it's, it's a measurable effect. Uh, children think that Christmas takes forever to come. Right. Adults think, my God, Christmas just came and went. And the reason is very simple. We mark time by landmarks. And if you're young, everything is new and you have lots of landmarks. Therefore, time progresses slowly for children because every new landmark is a new experience. Once you're old, you realize, oh my God, Christmas again. It's the same Christmas cards, the same people. There are no more landmarks. And therefore, time seems to go whizzing by if you're an older person. So if you want to slow down time, it's very simple. Create more landmarks. Visit places you've never been to. Do bizarre things. Create more memory landmarks between you know one point and another and your sense of time will expand and we even demonstrated that I, I hosted a BBC special called Time in which we induced that effect and, and measure the passing of time and it's true, older people and younger people measure the passage of time differently because the brain measures the passage of time by landmarks the more landmarks or you know events, nice events that you have uh, the, the slower time seems to beat and if you want to slow down time, create lots of novel experiences. Number two is way in the back. Okay, yeah. I have two questions. Uh, the first, lately there's been like a lot of theories about multiple uh, universes, universes inside of black holes or universes, uh, parallel universes. Will there be, if there are other universes, any way to contact another universe? That's the first one. Uh, the short answer is no. <laughs> uh, but uh, let me Good explain. Luck with that, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One parallel universe exists in another dimension, in which case a wormhole may do it. Uh, wormholes are gateways between universes, shortcuts like a subway ride to two parallel universes. If I take two sheets of paper, for example, and I drill a hole connecting two sheets of paper, that is called a wormhole. And uh, if you're on the top sheet of paper, you're invisible to somebody on the bottom sheet of paper. And in fact, that's how H.G. Wells created The Invisible Man. If you actually read the novel The Invisible Man, which most people never do, The Invisible Man becomes invisible because he's hovering in the fourth dimension. So he's hovering right above us, and we cannot see him because light travels underneath him. In fact, there's one theory that this could be dark matter. Dark matter is invisible but has gravity. If there's a galaxy hovering above us in hyperspace, we cannot see it because it's in another dimension. But we can feel its presence because gravity does go between universes. So there's one theory that says that dark matter is nothing but ordinary matter floating in another dimension. Now, to create a wormhole is quite difficult. You would have to play with a black hole. 
and a black hole to create a tear in space and then negative energy to stabilize it. That would require a technology a few thousand years more advanced than us. But it does mean that perhaps in outer space, aliens have already perfected this technology, in which case they may go zipping throughout the galaxy this way. But that is one way you can communicate with a parallel universe. Okay, who had number three? Uh, now we got more of them. Let's raise your hands. One, two, and three, and four, five. Okay, that's it. One, two, where's three? Three is there, four, five. That's it. Okay, remember your numbers. Okay. And then we'll be done. Okay, go ahead. We've made a lot of progress in, with respect to uh, quantum computers. We're in still very early stages. How do you see quantum computers aiding mankind's knowledge, getting away from zeros and ones now to infinity? Well, first of all, we have Moore's Law that says the computer power doubles every 18 months. Your cell phone today has more computer power than all of NASA in 1969 when they put two men on the moon. In fact, when I see these old videotapes of NASA, I say, oh my God, 64K processors. You're not going to put me in one of those rocket ships. It's criminal what we were doing in the 60s, putting humans backed up by the power of less than one cell phone. However, Moore's Law cannot go on forever, as you, as you are hinting. Uh, it's slowing down now. You can actually see it. Moore's Law is slowing down, which means that in the next decade or two, uh, Silicon Valley could become a rust belt. Uh, there could be mass unemployment in Silicon Valley. Well, that's as, not a very happy idea. Yeah, as we go to the <laughs> next generation, the next generation, I think, will be molecular. Will be molecular uh, transistors, nanotransistors, graphene, carbon, whatever. But beyond that... Beyond molecular transistors and graphene and, and nanotechnology is computing on atoms, and that's quantum computers, which compute on individual atoms. The problem is you have to have them vibrate in unison. That's called coherence, vibrating in unison. The slightest vibration will make them decohere and, and reduce to a jumble of random atoms. So somebody's sneezing a mile away. Uh, a truck going by miles away would create enough disturbance to ruin the calculation. And that's the problem. The world's record for a quantum computer calculation is that 3 times 5 is 15. That's the world's record for a quantum computer calculation. IBM set that record. <laughs> However, it's harder than you think. Here's a homework problem. Take five atoms, go home tonight, and multiply three times five is 15. And you realize it's really hard. It is really hard to multiply three times five is 15 on five atoms because the slightest vibration will cause decoherence. And that's the fundamental problem with quantum computers, decoherence. Now, why should, why should you care? If you could create a quantum computer, you could break any computer code of any nation on the planet Earth. The CIA, we now know, according to Snowden, Snowden released the records on this, we now know. You don't the mean C CIA, you mean NSA. NSA, right. The NSA looked into the possibility of creating a quantum computer so they can break everyone's code. And they said, impossible with today's technology. So I think we're decades away from creating a quantum computer. But when we do, it'll change everything because it'll mean a new generation of computers, orders of magnitude more powerful than today's, uh, today's machines. Okay, who had number Unless two? Unless you sneeze. Number two. I want to go back to your discussion previously about the difference in perception of time from adulthood versus childhood and so forth. Mm -hmm. Because I think what you're maybe leading to, maybe this is something John Hendricks could use, 
what we're doing this week is a way of setting new landmarks, so slowing down the progression of time. Yeah, that's what you're doing, meeting new people, interacting with new concepts, creating new landmarks. So when you think about this period, you'll say, oh, yeah, I had all these memories, and it was so long ago, (laughs) because that's how you measure the passage of time. That's how the brain does it, and that's how you can fool it. You can fool the brain to slow down time. So it reverses aging. In that sense, mental aging can be reversed, right? Of course, if you can't remember all the events, then it'll still feel like all the... Okay, who's got number three? Okay. Oh, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Okay. I'll retract my hand. You had mentioned uh, in your, in your uh, lecture that um, a, a man who could uh, recite pi, however many decimal About 10,000 decimal places, right? Yeah. Ten, Daniel Hammond. You had said that, that you asked him how he could do that, and he said that he assigned a color to each of them. That's right. Uh, he suffers from synesthesia. Synesthesia is when two, two sensations mix in the brain. The brain is literally wired incorrectly. And so uh, when he hears sounds or sees numbers, he sees a color mm-hmm. associated with these things. That is typical synesthesia. Many people with Asperger's syndrome have it. And for reasons we don't understand, they also have photographic memory. And they can memorize incredible digits and numbers. It took him about eight hours to recite that uh, pie. Uh, try to recite anything for eight hours, yeah. <laughs> and you realize how difficult and, it and is. And he got it right. And he got it right. Else, yeah. A computer program checked every single digit as he was going through it. And I asked him how he did it. And he memorized colors with every number. But then how did he do that? And he said that when he was a child, social skills were totally alien to him. Mm-hmm. He had to actually watch people's lips, actually look at the sequence of a conversation. How do you start a conversation? How do you end it? How do you represent displeasure? How do you represent pleasure? All these things which we think are instinctive. For him, we're totally alien. It's like a dog trying to understand how humans interact with each other socially. But he figured it out. And he figured it out by associating numbers. (laughs) Numbers with a smile. Numbers with a frown. And trying to use his frame of reference, which is numbers and colors, to understand human interactions. And since then, he's written a bestseller, uh, uh, Born on a Blue Day. And so it does mean that you can learn social skills. But anyway, to answer your question, we don't really know how he does it. But we do think that forgetting is a very complicated, complex biochemical process. And in these people's brains, they have forgotten how to forget. They do not know how to forget. They constantly run these numbers and these things that happen to them over and over again uh, because the forgetting mechanism is broken. And they've literally forgotten how to forget, which means that we, too, can have this capability But evolution has given us the ability to forget these things because we don't need to remember what did we do 30 years ago on a Friday afternoon, right? We don't need that information. It gets in the way. But it it does mean that for short-term periods, we might be able to induce this effect to have photographic memory and then turn it off later. Great for taking exams. What causes uh, we don't know. It's just a rewiring of the brain. The brain, the sensations of two uh, two senses are little, wires are literally crossed, and uh, that's why they see colors when they should be seeing sound, hearing sounds. Hearing sounds. Okay, now you get to do number four. Okay. Do you think that they, whether it be our gov- governments are holding much classified information about we do know that life is out there, or there is, you know, there's life out there, you know. How 
up front do you think the governments are being? Well, the government, of course, lies. I mean, that's a given. The government, of course, covers things up. That's a given, right? But do they have evidence of alien visitations and so on and so forth? Uh, well, I once had a lunch with some people from DARPA, physicists from DARPA, and I asked them about that. Uh, you know, do you people, they're Pentagon physicists, have access to interstellar technology? And their, their answer was, I wish we did. <laughs> I wish we really did because it would ha- help their work so much. But the answer is no. I mean, to the best of their knowledge, and they're government physicists with access to classified files. Of course, they could be simply lying to me too, right? Well, but- I'll tell you what. you got two DARPA guys in the room right now. I'll <laughs> tell you right now, we don't have any clue about this crap. Besides, <laughs> besides there's the Fermi paradox to worry about. Right. Right. Okay. So, sorry, um, if you were looking for something really cool, that didn't happen. Number five, last question. Where is it? All right. <laughs> How much am I? Hey, we're going to do an auction on number five now. I've been, no, go I ahead. just wanted to say, Dr. Chilton, I think you were maybe referring to Dr. Chilton Pierce, um, Joseph Pierce, uh, Pierce's work. He wrote about uh, the biology of transcendence and the brain, how it evolves um, from you know, in infancy all the way up through mid-twenties and how as, as memory or as experiences happen, the brain forms and then shuts off that, that amount of development and then moves on to the next phase. And it's fascinating work. I don't know if you, were you referring to that? Uh, I, I'm not aware of that work, no. But go on. You have a no, comment? it's just really fascinating that we, we possibly have a lot of capacity to learn and develop that we haven't tapped into because we're not parenting correctly, we're not giving opportunities for the brain to reach its full potential. Right. And, you know, our brain are learning machines. They're neural networks. They rewire themselves after learning every task. That's what the brain does. It learns constantly, and therefore that gives rise to plasticity. I mean, there are limits to plasticity, but that's the reason why the brain is so plastic, because that's what it does. It's, a, it's basically a learning machine. While your laptop today is just as stupid as it was yesterday, <laughs> your laptop never gets more intelligent, because your laptop is an adding machine. The more you download code into it, the dumber it gets, actually. It's it's the inverse effect. Okay, well, I think that we are now uh, out of time, but thank you so much for joining us, and let's thank Michio for all of this. Thank you. you. This concludes our conversation with famed futurist and theoretical physicist Michio Kaku. If you'd like to learn more about the mysteries of the mind, the origins of the universe, and the mind-bending principles of quantum mechanics, check out CuriosityStream.com, a new on-demand video platform with top documentaries and fascinating interviews about science, technology, space, and more. Watch what you want, where you want, commercial-free. That's CuriosityStream.com.